Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, Florida's Appalachian people and Mission San Luis in Tallahassee. And so they move to Louisiana, and they end up to the north on the Red River and are there to this day. The St. Petersburg Times celebrated their 75th anniversary in 1959, so it's still a, really a powerhouse for, for journalism, not only in the state of Florida, but it's really hit and covers a lot of national events and is significant on the national and international level. And we'll discuss the Samuel Proctor Oral History Program at the University of Florida in Gainesville. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. On July 1, 1704, the Spanish and their Apalachee allies burned down Mission San Luis to keep it from being captured by the English. The native people and the Spanish had not always been friends, but by the early 18th century they were working cooperatively for their mutual benefit. Replicas of both Spanish and Apalachee structures from this period can be seen today at Mission San Luis in Tallahassee, where Jonathan Shepard is executive director. Shepard says that long before the Spanish first encountered the Appalachee in the early 16th century, the native people were already accomplished farmers. So before contact, the Appalachee had established control over the region that exists between now what is Leon, Jefferson, Wakulla counties, stretching from the Osceola River in the east to the Oklahoma River in the west, and probably north into what is now South Georgia. We know that they were, of course, an agricultural people, so they would have established large fields in which to grow their primary crops, corn, beans, and squash. We know from the DeSoto Chronicles, when DeSoto encountered the Appalachian, they were living in fortified villages, villages that probably had a, a stockade around them, and uh, they would have supplemented their agriculture with hunting deer, bear, buffalo that lived in this area, and probably fishing along the creeks and along the Gulf. The Appalachian focus on agriculture makes them unique among Florida tribes. They were known among people on the Florida Peninsula as a powerful tribe and traded with groups to the north of what would become Tallahassee. As DeSoto's making his way north from Tampa Bay along the central part of what is now Florida, he's hearing about the Appalachian, and he's hearing about how fierce they are and what a culture of warriors that they are. So they were well known 
Um, we don't know the extent of the trade network that they had, but we know that the one did exist and the Appalachian was a name that was known to tribes far and wide. The Appalachian played a complex ball game that was carefully described in the writings of a Spanish friar at Mission San Luis, Jonathan Shepard. And essentially the ball game was played between villages. One village would challenge another to play the ball game. The ball game pole, which was very tall, it was established in the middle of the plaza and essentially both teams, the way the game was played, both teams could use their knees, their elbows, their feet to try to knock a small deer hide ball into either a basket which sat at the top of the pole or to hit one of the horn-shaped objects that extended from the pole. And you got points depending on which horn you hit and getting it into the basket. And the game was essentially a combination of our rugby and soccer, except you couldn't carry the ball, you had to kick it along, but it was very violent. Uh, you could tackle, bite, scratch, whatever you needed to do to stop the opponent from scoring. And the ball game was played to honor the god of thunder and god of rain. You played the game so that there would be rain for your crops. And the game was also very ceremonial. The night before the game, both teams would meet in the hosting village's council house where they would celebrate, they would drink casino, the black drink, to purge themselves of any impurities. And both teams kind of had a pep rally before the game. And the, the ball players that were the best at the sport were held in high regard. That's something that was part of the sport as well. The ceremonial black drink was a caffeinated beverage brewed from Yopon holly leaves. When consumed in large quantities, it caused regurgitation, which was seen as purifying. The ceremonial black drink was served in the Appalachian Council House, which could accommodate more than a thousand people. As Jonathan Shepard explains, the early encounters between the Appalachian and the Spanish did not go well. When DeSoto's expedition arrives in Appalachia in the fall of 1539, there is combat between the Spanish and the Appalachian. The Appalachian, uh, fierce people, warrior-like people, they contest DeSoto's crossing of the Osceola River. Once DeSoto's troops had a bridgehead over the Osceola, they begin to move into Appalachia. And once they move past the belt of timber along the Osceola River and they enter the open grounds where the crops were, the Spaniards using mounted knights essentially with lances are able to run the Appalachia down and it's really no contest once the Spanish were able to unleash their, their mounted infantry, their, their mounted troops. And DeSoto's able to capture the Appalachian capital and Haika, and he stays there for the winter of 1539 and 1540, but during the winter, uh, the Appalachian are constantly harassing the Spanish and Haika. They, uh, at one point, launch a raid that burns down part of the town DeSoto and his troops are never really secure while they're here because of those harassing raids. In 1540, DeSoto moves north, away from the Appalachian. St. Augustine gives the Spanish a permanent presence in Florida in 1565, and missionaries are sent to the Appalachian. Mission San Luis was established by the 1640s, but tensions ran high between the Spanish and the native population. The cooperation is 
tenuous and the demonstration that the Appalachia are not willing to wholeheartedly give themselves over to what the friars are teaching and to any type of Spanish control was demonstrated when the Appalachia revolt in 1647 and they kill the Spanish deputy governor's family who's out here. They kill the Spanish deputy governor who had been sent to oversee this territory of La Florida and the Spanish are forced to flee back to St. Augustine and in the 1650s the Spanish are invited by the Appalachia to come back out to Appalachia. Threats from other tribes to the west prompted the Appalachia to seek protection from the Spanish. It became a mutually beneficial relationship as St. Augustine needed food from the Appalachia and the Spanish could defend the natives from their increasingly aggressive neighbors. On the site of Mission San Luis in modern-day Tallahassee, this period of cooperation between the Appalachia and the Spanish has been recreated with structures representing both cultures. Jonathan Shepard. So what we've recreated is the mission as it would have existed in 1703. By 1703, uh, you have a substantial Spanish population here. The Spanish residents would have numbered probably over 100, and we've represented that in the Spanish house that we have reconstructed in the style the Spanish residents would have lived in. The Appalachian Council House has been reconstructed in its entirety. It's based on the exact footprints that the archaeologists discovered. And the council house we know was still being used in 1703 by not only the Appalachian Council, but by the Spaniards when they would send out representatives from St. Augustine to discuss with the leaders here what could be done better or address any problems that had popped up over a certain period of time. Of course, we have the Franciscan Church and the Franciscan Friary constructed to the exact footprint as was found by the archaeologists. And of course, the church and the council house remain kind of the most important buildings here because of the uh, importance of the Catholicism and the Appalachian Council. And then we also have the Spanish fort that was constructed in 1702 and to demonstrate the growing threat against this area by not only tribes to the north and west, but also an English threat coming out of what is now South Carolina. The English had a significant negative impact on the Appalachian. By the time the English take control of Florida from the Spanish in 1763, most of the Appalachian are either enslaved or killed. The English are moving west out of Carolina across central Georgia into western Georgia for the purpose of controlling the fur trade and the trading networks that existed among the tribes that lived in southern Georgia, central Georgia. And the English also are interested in labor for the burgeoning plantations that are being established in Carolina. And they realize that Florida with the Appalachian, it has a ready source of labor that can be captured. And so the English are encouraging the tribes they are trading with in southwest Georgia to make raids into Florida to capture Appalachia, who then can be sold to the English to work on the plantations. You also then have the uh, War of Spanish Succession, which begins in 1702, and the English then have uh, a license to invade Spain as part of a legitimate war, and they invade to try to capture St. Augustine. They're not successful, but the raids become more frequent, led by Englishmen, and they become more devastating. 
Forgotten for centuries as they kept their heritage hidden, Appalachian descendants have recently been found in what was once West Florida. We now know that there are descendants of the Appalachian living uh, among, along the Red River in Louisiana. It was decided by the Spanish they could no longer hold Appalachia. When the English raids became so devastating and the numbers that the English could bring were just so overwhelming and the Spanish could not defend against those incursions, they decided to burn San Luis and evacuate Appalachia. Most of the Spaniards either go to San Augustine or to Pensacola, depending on which route was available at the time where the English were located. Most of the Appalachia are taken by the English back to Carolina as slaves, but a number escape to Pensacola, and also a number escape to St. Augustine, a small number, a larger number escapes to Pensacola, and they remain actually at Mobile, Alabama, what is now Mobile, a French colony, until the English receive Florida as a part of the treaty that ends the Seven Years' War, 1763. And the Appalachians then move further west to Louisiana. They want to be with the French who are also practicing Catholics. They want to be with people that worship the way they do. And so they move to Louisiana and they end up to the north in the Red River, along the Red River, and are there to this day. Jonathan Shepard is executive director of Mission San Luis in Tallahassee. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find out about upcoming events, locate great books on Florida history and culture, watch our television series, Florida Frontiers, subscribe to our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Happy anniversary, baby! Got you on my... Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, the Tampa Bay Times had a predecessor that was a major newspaper in Florida. Yeah, that's right, Ben. What we're talking about today is the St. Petersburg Times. And for anyone living in, at least along the Gulf Coast of Florida in the 20th century, they probably recognize that name. It was a nationally significant uh, newspaper for most of the 20th century, but it actually traces its origins back to 1884. Uh, and the paper started as the West Hillsboro Times. And at that time, Pinellas County didn't exist. It was all part of Hillsboro County. So the Pinellas Peninsula, as it's known now, was all part of Hillsboro County. And they called that area West 
West Hillsboro. But it wasn't until 1911, 1912 that the residents of Pinellas, what would become Pinellas County, decided to secede from Hillsboro County and created Pinellas County. But the newspaper is known as the West Hillsboro Times. It wasn't until 1892 that they moved their headquarters from Dunedin originally, then to Clearwater, and then eventually to St. Petersburg. And in 1898, they officially changed their name to the St. Petersburg Times. In 1912, a gentleman from Indiana by the name of Paul Pointer purchased the newspaper that had been struggling and had changed ownership over the years. And he ran it until really through the Depression years, just prior to World War II, and had a lot of financial difficulty, which was uh, common, especially for newspapers at that time during the Depression years after the 1920s kind of land boom period. His son actually took over ownership in the 1940s, and he's been credited at least with really bringing the paper into the 20th century and, and revitalizing the paper and really connecting it to the community of Pinellas County and really the entire Sun Coast and most of the Gulf Coast of Florida and developed it into really a powerhouse newspaper. And, and his name was Nelson Pointer. So the, the, the Pointer family are really an integral part of the story of the St. Petersburg Time and what would become the uh, Tampa Bay Times. And in 1959, the St. Petersburg Times celebrated their 75th anniversary, right? Yeah, that's right. As I said earlier, in 1884, that's where they really traced their origins, the beginnings of the West Hillsboro Times. And by 1959, Pinellas County and, and the peninsula had really changed, and really the sun coast of Florida had developed tremendously, especially after the Second World War. We saw an enormous influx of people moving to the state changing the demographics of the state and changing the nature of the Gulf Coast of Florida, especially around the Tampa Bay area. And with it came this world-class newspaper. And with the population changes, we also had a lot of issues. And, and these journalists, these investigative journalists, began really working on reporting on what was happening on the Gulf Coast of Florida. And that's what kind of brought this paper into the 20th century. So what we're looking at today, like you said, it was published in 1959. This is a 75th anniversary. It's a five-volume book and it was actually printed on newspaper print. So it's a little bit yellowed, as you can see now, which is unfortunate, but uh, it's really a fascinating collection of material that was produced uh, under the leadership of Nelson Pointer. And the five volumes cover the history of St. Petersburg, the history of the St. Petersburg Times. They talk about life on the Sun Coast, uh, religion, culture, education, the history of the government, the county's government, starting with their breaking away from Hillsborough County back in 1912, the economic development that's happened over time. And, and then eventually in 1959, they had just moved into a new printing office. So they talk about the printing office. So it's broken up into these five volumes. And the, and the articles are really fairly short and succinct, but they're fascinating. And it's a great view of what life was like kind of at the beginnings of this massive influx of change and demographic uh, change and growth in Pinellas County and really the entire Suncoast region. So I picked out a couple of articles that I found were, were particularly interesting, starting with some articles about the, the history of the city government. And this one's just called The City Government Story. And it's a primer on the makeup of Pinellas County. And it's really very complicated when you think about establishing a county government, especially in the 20th century. They, they broke away from Hillsborough and they had to kind of rebuild from the ground up while they're building a city. So if you can imagine about 1910, there are less than 10,000 people that live on the Pinellas Peninsula. So you have to create a government essentially from scratch, and this chronicles that history. Moving on, when we turn the page here, we're in now volume five, and it looks at some of the history and culture. So they identify museums. One of the most famous museums, of course, on the Sun Coast is the Ringling Museum, which had been open to the public since the 1930s. And even at this time, it was really a, a destination for people visiting that part of the country. 
Now, this is one of the more, I would say, on the surface, kind of a humorous article. But when you look at it, it's fairly serious. It's entitled, The World of the Exes, Tomorrow's Family, circa 2034. So this was a one of the reporters and their vision of what life in Pinellas County might have looked like in, in 2034. And they say here, quote, Most of the needless sound irritants of 1959, such as ringing telephones and clicking typewriters, have been replaced by far superior devices, unquote. So it's kind of humorous. But it's fascinating. They, they were really priming this region for tremendous growth, which, of course, has occurred and continues to happen along this uh, this part of Florida's Gulf Coast, but not quite to the extent that these people sort of vision. It's kind of a, a Jetson's rendering of what life was like uh, on the Gulf Coast. So it's really packed with these wonderful articles. And one more thing I want to point out, each edition featured these wonderful local artists who did beautiful cover art for all five editions. And these were people who were living in the Gulf Coast, but many of whom were world-renowned artists who just happened to either retire or were teaching or, or just happened to be living on the uh, Gulf Coast of Florida. Now, people have been predicting the end of newspapers for years, if not decades. Although the St. Petersburg Times is now the Tampa Bay Times, their journalistic legacy remains strong. Yeah, that's right. The um, writers and editors for the newspaper have accumulated over a dozen Pulitzer Awards for, for journalism over the years. Since 1964, they actually won, one of their writers won their first award. And so it's still a, really a powerhouse for, for journalism, not only in the state of Florida, but it's really hit and covers a lot of national events and is significant for, on the national and international level. And a lot of that has to do with, again, as I said, the, the Pointer family. In the 1970s, Nelson Pointer set up what's known as the Pointer Institute, and it's a nonprofit uh, journalism school, and it's world-renowned school, and it actually owns the newspaper. So this is a newspaper owned by a nonprofit organization, which is very unusual in the country. And because of that, they have a very unique perspective in terms of their their ownership and how they approach their editorial outlook. And in many ways, it creates a model for journalism into the 21st century when newsrooms are cutting their staff and trying to figure out how to make money. Here we have a nonprofit that's you know keeping the lights on, but also maintaining that journalistic integrity. Great. Well, thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Coco. If you'd like to see the book we've been discussing, check out our web extras at myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers. Historian Samuel Proctor was editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly for more than 40 years. As Holly Baker explains, Proctor also established a groundbreaking oral history program. I recently talked to Dr. Paul Ortiz, the director of the Samuel Proctor Oral History Program and associate professor of history at the University of Florida in Gainesville. Dr. Ortiz talked to me about the Samuel Proctor Oral History Program at the University of Florida. Founded in 1967 by historian and Jacksonville native Samuel Proctor, it's one of the foremost oral history programs in the United States. Dr. Proctor was a legendary UF faculty member. He taught for 50 years. And when I say Sam taught for 50 years, I mean he taught for 50 years. Uh, he was a World War II veteran, uh, UF graduate, 
during the war, his fight was in teaching literacy at Camp Landing. One of the things this country discovered at the outset of World War II was we were not prepared to fight a modern war because we had an epic high rate of illiteracy, uh, not just in the South, but all throughout the country. And so what Sam did in Camp Landing was teach basic literacy. In the 60s, Sam was part of this really amazing cohort, and most of them, or a lot of them, were movement people. They had been involved in the civil rights movement, the women's rights movement, the anti-war movement, and they had a new perspective on history, and the perspective was, if you want to find out about World War II, how many times can you interview Dwight D. Eisenhower, or Omar Bradley, you know, God love him, or Harry Truman, but, you know, what about talking to, like, an ordinary foot soldier? You know, what about talking to an ordinary sailor? And if you're talking about the women's suffrage movement, how about talking with a rank-and-fall activist? In the 1970s, Dr. Samuel Proctor trained graduate students to conduct oral history interviews with Native Americans in Florida, Alabama, and North Carolina. Today, the Samuel Proctor Oral History Program has several ongoing projects, including the Veterans History Project, the Asian American History Project, and the Florida Queer History Project. As Dr. Ortiz explains, the Samuel Proctor Oral History Program created the Florida Queer History Project as a response to the 2016 Pulse nightclub massacre in Orlando, Florida. I was out with a field team of students doing interviews in the Mississippi Delta during the Pulse nightclub massacre, and two students called me from Florida, and actually that was the first I heard about the massacre, was from my students. And they said, we need an LGBT uh, research project. We need to be interviewing people in Florida. And so we started our queer history project. The Samuel Proctor Oral History Program also created the African American History Project, a collection that contains hundreds of oral history interviews about black life in Florida. It's one of the largest public African American history collections in existence. Recently, the Samuel Proctor Oral History Program unveiled the Joel Buchanan Archive of African American Oral History at the University of Florida during a symposium titled, From Segregation to Black Lives Matter. We're opening a collection of 600 oral history interviews that we've done since 2009 with African Americans in the state of Florida, focusing on themes all the way from memories of slavery. There's a lot of interviews where people had you know, ancestors involved in Reconstruction. Uh, many people that we interviewed who were, who were really key activists in the civil rights movement, for example, we have an oral history with Mrs. Laura Dixie. She was one of the leaders of the Tallahassee bus boycott in 1956. We have interviews with Patricia Stevens Dew. She was a leader of the sit-in movement in Tallahassee in the early 60s and a leader of the Congress of Racial Equality. Following in the footsteps of oral history pioneer Samuel Proctor, Dr. Paul Ortiz and his students at the University of Florida preserve the voices and the memories of ordinary people and reveal their perspectives on the past. Paul Ortiz. I love the environment of getting our students out into the field, away from the classroom. I tell them oral history, like all of the things we, we talk about in a classroom, things like you know creating safe spaces, trigger warnings, things like that, throw them out the door. When you do oral history, there are no safe spaces. You know, you can't do trigger warnings. You might talk to a Holocaust survivor. You might talk to someone whose grandfather was lynched. I mean, we have a lot of those oral histories. And so oral history is, is cutting edge and it's, and it's dangerous. And the kind of knowledge which is created by oral history, you know, can be incredibly illuminating and empowering to people. To learn more about the Samuel Proctor Oral History Program at the University of Florida, go to oral .history.ufl.edu. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker. 
public history coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Join us right here again next week. Until then, you can visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org and find us on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.